You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. Merry Christmas, if you can still say that. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in the verses that Miss Jill just read for us. Luke 2, 22 through 38. If you're new here, uh, my name's Jamin. Welcome. Uh, if you're watching online, welcome. We're glad that you're tuning in wherever you are. And then a special welcome, we have all of the kids with us in here this morning. So welcome, kiddos. Hey, let's do this. Um, Think about kids, or adults, I guess. Think about the best gift you got yesterday. And I'm going to count to three. And when I count to three, you yell out the best gift that you got, okay? So I'm going to count to three. And on three, just tell me real loud what was the best thing you got. One, two, three. All right. I have another gift for you this morning, uh, and it is a 20-minute sermon. It's my gift to you. (laughs) Maybe that's my gift to your parents, actually. You're so welcome. I don't know how to feel about that. Um, Yesterday, we celebrated Jesus' birth, and today is the day after that. And I want to look at a story in Luke that happens not the day after Jesus' birth, but it's a few weeks after Jesus' birth. But specifically, I want to look at the life of two people. We, we hear about their life very briefly. They don't get a whole lot of ink uh, in the pages of the Bible, but the ink they do get uh, is just so compelling to me. It's the life of an old man named Simeon and the life of a prophetess, a widow named Anna. And there's much in their life to learn and to emulate. And it kind of collides with something that I feel uh, always on a, on a day like this around this time of year. I came across an article this week by a psychologist. I didn't read the article, I just read the headline, which maybe isn't helpful, but the headline says this, seven tips to beat the post-holiday blues. And that's what the article is about, this thing called the post-holiday blues. You know what that is? Uh, The holiday ends and life begins to turn to normal and there's this kind of sinking feeling that sets in, maybe like a cloud of sadness that just kind of comes and, 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 and... creates that climate in your emotion. There's actually a a phrase for it. It's called post-holiday syndrome, and it belongs to a families of of, of syndromes, like it's close cousins with post-vacation syndrome. And the idea is that after these big moments where there's a lot of excitement, uh, where a lot of memories are made, where there's a lot of meaning, maybe a lot of preparing, something that you just have to get amped up for, and then you enjoy, after those kinds of moments, there's this letdown that comes after. There is this uh, sadness, this, these blues that kind of come in. I have a distinct memory of being nine years old, uh, driving uh, on the interstate home from my grandparents' house in Oklahoma City. It was a couple days after Christmas, and I realized, I just had this moment where I realized there were no more presents to open, and we wouldn't do that again for another year. And I just sat there in our station wagon thinking, Life is just so cruel. And I remember that thought as a kid. And it has not gotten better at all. I'm, I'm older than that, a bit older than that now. And yesterday, we opened presents, and there was a moment where I looked at the tree, and I thought, gosh, by this time next week, it'll be back up in the attic. And that just made me really sad. Like, I, I leave our lights up on our house long after what Carrie can tolerate, And it is not because I'm lazy. It's not just because I'm lazy. 
it's because I'm in denial is what's true. I don't want it to end. I love Christmas. I love everything about it. I love the season. But I also just love like big moments. I love something that you gather people together for and you have to plan for and you get excited about. And maybe you know that kind of letdown feeling that I'm talking about, the, the syndrome that comes after the big event. Maybe you feel it now. Maybe you, you felt something like that after a vacation or after extended time with family. And I'm sure that this, I'm sure that the feeling of sadness is a lot of things for a lot of people, right? For some, it's because the holidays are hard, because there's a kind of loss to the holidays. Um, family dynamics can be difficult for, 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 for many. There's a lot of goodness in the holidays too. There's a lot that's worth missing, you know, time with, with, with people that you love. But part of it, and the part that I want to pay attention to, is that it's, it's a holiday seasons, it's, it's big moments like that that remind us that we as humans were made for meaning. Uh, we are creatures that were created with a deep, intrinsic need for meaning and for life to matter. And we're made for something that's bigger than us. We're actually made for something that we can't just create on our own and, and contrive on our own. And so when the holidays come around or when some big event comes around, there's something of like joy and mystery and wonder that is offered, or, or yeah, at least offered. Maybe it doesn't deliver on, but it's offered. And because we were made for meaning as humans, these times of the year, they hold something special and, and they often come with high expectations. And then there's this letdown after all that. And, and what many people do then is they just begin to try and cope with that letdown by looking to the next big thing. What's the next thing on the calendar that's coming? What's the next exciting thing that, I, that, that, that I'm going to be involved in? One author talks about our culture this way, about this specific problem. American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar-laced celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and always having fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless, mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and positivity we can perfect our lives and our world. What's described is somewhat of this cyclical search for meaning and fun and leisure. It reminds me of what we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about peace and how maybe for many of us we have confused the promise of, of peace with the promise of ease. And so where that leaves so many of us is just living for the next, living for the next holiday. I'm living for the next date night. I'm living for the next you know, time when I can just kind of be away and unplug from things. I'm living for the next time that, you know, my home is, is full again. Like for me, before the day was even over yesterday, I already started thinking about New Year's. And it's not because I'm a planner. I'm not. It, it, it's because I have learned to expect my disappointment or my discontentment in the present to be solved by something that's coming in the future. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says. We quote it around here often because it's worth quoting often. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. Well, what does any of that have to do with our passage in Luke chapter 2? 
Uh, about 40 days after Jesus' birth, his parents, as faithful, law-abiding Jews, took him to the temple for a ceremony. This is an oversimplification of what's going on, but it's somewhat like our baby dedication services here at Citizens, just without all the kazoos. Um, in Jerusalem, at the temple, while they're doing this baby dedication ceremony, they have these two brief encounters. One is with a widow who was in the temple every day, and another was with a man who was holding on to a promise that God had made him. It's Simeon and Anna. And what they both share in common is that they both had been waiting for the Messiah. And what they both share in common is towards the end of their life, what we get to see is we get to see the thing that they were hoping for and waiting for come true for them. They, they get to meet Jesus. And while what is told to us about them is brief, what is told is so compelling of a life that's just, it's faithfulness over a long time. In a world where many just live season to season, in a world where many live event to event, um, we have in Anna and in Simeon two lives that are very different, that are marked by a different kind of rhythm. And it's a long, steady faithfulness where they set their face towards the Lord. They waited on him. They hoped in him. And we see their waiting erupt into satisfied sight when they get to meet Jesus face to face. And that's what I want. That, that kind of life of steady, faithful ordinary obedience that erupts one day in satisfied sight when I get to see Jesus face to face. That's what I desire for my life. I feel far from that. But that's what I, by God's grace, aspire to, to live life. Not tossed and turned by the calendar, but just steady hope and faithfulness towards Jesus. And if I ask of their life, how do I get there? What was true about their life? There's three things that we see in their life that I want to offer to you briefly. There's a holy discontentment there's faithful action, and there's patient hope. For both Anna and Simeon, these lives that had a steady faithfulness to them, holy discontentment, faithful action, and patient hope. Verse 25 says this about Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Remember that, that phrase, consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's a promise that was made to him by the Spirit of God. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Verse 36 tells us about Anna. There is a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Shout out to my son Asher who's here. And any other Asher in the room? And any Phanuel in the room for that matter, <laughs> if you're here. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Just one more time. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Maybe it's an unusual combination of words, but both Simeon and Anna have as part of their life a holy discontentment. 
It says about Simeon, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation means comfort. He was waiting for Israel's comfort to come, and Israel's comfort was going to come in the promised Messiah. They lived at a time when Israel was in an exile of sorts. They were in the promised land, but the land was controlled by the Roman Empire, and and everything was just a bit broken. The temple was not what it used to be. God's presence was not with his people in the way that it was promised. Most of all, the people of God were not who they were supposed to be. They were not a light to the nations. They were given over to self-righteous. They were given over to worship of other gods. So the world was broken. And for both Simeon and Anna, they look into that. They look into the state of the world, the state of the people of God, and they're discontent with it. They're not okay with it. They are uh, discontent with the way things are because the way things were were not the way that God intended them. And that's what holy discontentment is about. It's about being troubled by what troubles God. It's not about always uh, experiencing a climate of cheer in your life. There are things in the world that are worth being troubled about, being discontent with the things around us that break the heart of God, that that are not the way they're supposed to be. Like, so one of the things that I try to remind us often and try to remind myself of often is that Christianity is not about positive emotions. Like, we don't judge how we're doing as Christians by asking, do I feel good, right, or do I feel cheerful or do I feel happy, right? The, and what I mean by that is it, it's not about being happy and never sad. It's not about being joyful and never angry. What growth is about, um, what faithfulness is about, is about responding in the world in a way that mirrors God's heart. Like there are things that sadden God and there are things that anger God. And so what it means to be faithful is when we're interacting in God's world in a way that mirrors what's going on in God's heart in heaven. And so a holy discontentment is when we look at something in God's world that's not the way it should be, and we respond, I'm not okay with that. And so the answer, and maybe the subtle answer or the one that's harder to come by, the answer to our surface-level discontentment the answer to our post-holiday syndrome, or at least the parts uh, where we're simply waiting for another fun, meaningful thing to come, the answer is not to find something to rescue us from that. The answer is to find something that's actually worth our deep discontentment and to meet God there, to meet Him there. Like what, hear me please, what disappoints us, what irritates us, what upsets us, That is as good an indicator as anything else in our life as to what we actually believe and what we actually want. Let me ask it this way. It's a bit targeted. I'm asking myself with you. If God were to take all of your discontentment and turn it into answered prayer, if God were to just take everything that would register as disappointment or discontentment in your soul, turn it into a prayer that he answered. If he took all the discontentment and turned it into prayer, what would change? What would change? Would the world look more righteous, more whole, more just, or would life just get easier? If he took all of the discontentment turned it into prayer, what would change? Look, here's why this is so important. What Simeon and Anna were both doing is they were longing for the Messiah. And the reason they were longing for the Messiah is because the things that they were most troubled by were the things that only he could fix. We will not grow. We will not grow in our longing for Jesus' second coming. 
which we've talked about all month, we will not grow in our longing for him to return unless we ache and grieve over the kinds of things that only his second coming will cure. It's why some of this just falls flat for some of us, myself included. Like all month long, it's Jesus came and he will come again. And some of us, it's like, yeah, Jesus is coming back. That, that sounds like that'll be nice, you know? But mostly remain unmoved by that kind of claim because our discontentment is so shallow that it doesn't require the return of Jesus to satisfy it. God help us. Far too easily pleased. And that ultimately is an issue of love and of disordered loves. Yesterday after we opened presents, we're sitting in the kitchen talking and building Legos and putting together toys and Madden is downloading on the PlayStation and all that. And someone says something about Jesus and I don't remember what was said or who said it, but somebody said something about Jesus and Christmas being about Jesus and him being the most important thing or something. And our three-year-old was sitting on the counter and she looks up just with a cold face and says, I love presence more than Jesus. And what was especially disturbing is she not only said it like there was nothing wrong with it, but she also said it like she knew the same thing was true for everyone else. <laughs> and, and she was just the only one being honest about it. And that's what I told her. I said, Ayla, you are the only honest person in this home right now, right? And she's right. And so maybe it's not presence, but the fight as a Christian is, is just, it's not, do you love Jesus? Everyone's answer is yes. The fight as a Christian is being able to dig around in our hearts, pay attention to our disappointment and discontentment so that we can confess, I love this more than I love Jesus. And you fill in the blank in a way that's appropriate and consistent with your, with your transparent confession before God, right? There are things that I desire more than his return and his presence. It's why Augustine talks about the Christian life as a process of learning to reorder our loves around Jesus. Not simply do you love him, but do you love him most? Is he the thing in your life that, 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 that holds the weightiest place in your heart? And so all of your loves fall in line after and in and through love for him. So my prayer is that God by his grace, would actually start by increasing my love for him, increasing my love for Jesus. And what will follow is joy and peace, yes, but also what will follow is an increased discontentment for things that only Jesus can heal. Faithful action is the next thing we see. I'll be brief here. Uh, um, I don't know if you ever think like this, but whenever Jesus does come back, I don't know if you ever think about people that maybe you want to find, and the Bible's really quiet about how all that works anyway, and so I don't, I don't know, maybe this is all speculation, but I think one of the people I want to have a conversation with is this prophetess, Anna. The first thing I want to ask her is, what does it mean to be a prophetess? The second thing I want to ask is just about her life. Here's what it says. It says, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84 she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna married as a teenager, 16, 17 years old, and that would have been late for that time. She could have been younger. But if she was 17, married seven years, her husband dies, now she's 84. It means she's been a widow for 60 years, 60 years as a widow. And what does she do with her 60 years? Prayer and fasting, and worship in the temple. That's a lifetime. 
She could have gone and looked for another husband, and there would have been nothing wrong with that. But instead, she fills her days with time with God. Can you imagine? And the question that we naturally ask is like, okay, so that's 60 years of doing the same thing probably every day for that long. What's the payoff? Jesus. The payoff is Jesus. The reward is Jesus, and she gets that because she was in the place where God came. She got to see and celebrate Jesus. You've heard this from me before. Find, would we all, goodness, find a few ordinary, faithful things you can do every single day and do them for as many days as God gives you. Read your Bible. Pray fast. Find needs to meet around you. Share your faith with those who don't know Jesus. If you don't know how, let's learn together. Find a few ordinary, faithful things you can do every single day and do them for as long as God gives you. And you know what? It won't be exciting. It won't always feel good. But remember what the need is, is a greater stamina today for ordinary, unseen obedience in the lives of ordinary Christians like us. And we are a quick-hit, dopamine-addicted society that when we are looking for heroes, we do not see the Annas among us. But make no mistake, it is the ordinary, everyday, faithful saints offering honest prayers, denying themselves, worshiping God, who are and will be the heroes of heaven. And I just want to be named among them. And I hope you do too. Let's be those people together. Patient hope. What marked their life that led to a steadiness in life was holy discontentment, faithful action, and patient hope. It had been revealed, this is Simeon, Simeon in, in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It says about Simeon that God had promised him, you will not die before you see the Messiah. Before you die, I'm going to let you see the Savior. And so he sees Jesus and he says this, now you are letting me die in peace. He's talking to God according to what? Your word. That word means promise. And he had held on to that in the waiting. What marked his life was a patient hope. But the, the way that he had cultivated patient hope was by holding on to the promise that God had made to him, remembering it, holding it close to his heart. It's what we said all month long during Advent. We access hope by holding on to promise. And if you think about, if we just kind of humanize this story and think about what that meant for a guy like Simeon, it meant that decades he waited, decades he waited. And now he sees Jesus. And here's what I love. It's so beautiful. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Before he even talks to Mary and Joseph, he talks to God. And the first thing he says to God is he prays the promise that God made to him. He prays it back to God. He had held it so tightly and remembered it and it was so uh, near and dear to his heart that it was the first thing off of his lips. And so it's not a stretch to think that he had prayed this promise back to God countless times before this moment. He had not forgotten it. If that's the thing that erupts off of his lips as soon as he sees Jesus, it means that it was something that he returned to, maybe something he even prayed to God before. And I just wonder how many times he, he prays this promise back to God in a moment of fulfillment. I wonder how many times he prayed it waiting for fulfillment when it looked like it wasn't going to happen. As he sees the people of God oppressed, God, you promised. You promised you wouldn't let me die until I see him. 
as nothing is changing in the world and as evil reigns, God, you promised. As he knows he's dying, his health begins to fail. He feels in his body that his time is coming to an end, and he just says, God, you, prom you promised, God. Laying on his bed at night, God, you promised you wouldn't let me die before I get to see him. Maybe even the morning as he's walking to the temple and his body aches from age and the walk is harder every single day and he has no idea he's about to hold God in his arms. God, you promised I would live to see hope face to face. He remembered, he held on, and holding on to those promises gave him a patience for his hope. God has made promises to you, friend, Christian. We have been visited by the Spirit of God, and we have been told so many wonderful things, promised so many wonderful things. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Here are just a few. Romans 8.28 promises that he will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, this light momentary affliction is preparing an eternal glory beyond compare. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, I I will give you rest. It's a promise. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. First Corinthians 15, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus. Those are yours. They're yours. Your promises. They are as much yours as Simeon's was his. Do you know them? Can you recite them? Have you committed them to memory? Have you ever considered praying those promises back to God? We would do well to do that. You know, as, as maybe life is filled with disappointment or life is filled with suffering, God, you promised you will use this for my good. As you're tired, as you're overwhelmed, as you're exhausted, God, you promised you'll give rest. I'm weary. You're gentle. As maybe your body is failing you, and maybe you are towards the end of life. God, you promised one day the perishable will put on the imperishable, and all of this is swallowed up in victory. We would do well to pray these back to God. Friend, I want to be like these people. Mostly I want to be like Jesus, but I want to be the kind of person who's filled with faith like Simeon and like Anna. I want my life to be marked by a holy discontentment, by faithful action, by patient hope. I am grateful for the love and grace of Jesus that helps us, and I'm believing that over time it will cultivate in us hearts that are steadier than the changing seasons, and it will cultivate in us lives that are set and oriented around our Savior as we wait for him to return. God, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. The messenger feels far from the message, Lord, and so I'm just asking this morning You know what you could do, God, is you could, just, you could just flood all of our lives with the kind of grace that leaves us forever changed in a moment. It seems like what you also delight in doing is just inviting us to take the next step of change and transformation and formation. And so maybe, Lord, for those, your, your children who have gathered here this morning, would you just help us that maybe you would just turn the dial in our hearts just a little bit, that it would turn a little bit more towards a holy discontentment, that it would turn more towards faithful action. Maybe all, maybe all 
that one of your children needed to hear this morning was, you read your Bible every day and it's worth it. Maybe all that needed to be heard was keep praying. Maybe someone here, God, would, um, would say, I'm going to commit one of your promises to memory and I'm going to recite it back to you, God, as a way for my hope to develop a patience and a stamina. Would you use your word, God, to change us? We're here because we want to look more like Jesus. Help us. We need you. Amen.